0: Stocks are up eight straight days, running into a seven-week winning streak. There are bulls everywhere on Wall Street. Everyone is running. As a matter of fact, we're finding that there are zero bears out there. And the most, the biggest bear of all is actually joining our show today because he's got some news. He might be flipping to the bullish side as well. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I'm your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith. And it's sunny and bitter cold, Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: Under 70 is bitter cold, okay? Bitter
0: cold, that's right. We'll have to have a fireside chat later on then. (laughs) But with us today is the chief investment officer of Unlimited Funds, Bob Elliott, who is coming back to buy, hold, sell, and give us his forecast and what he's thinking about for the markets. Welcome to the program, Bob.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. You Absolutely. know,
1: Bob, Todd buried the lead here because clearly, based on our last interview with you, when you were quite bearish, um, it appears that you actually flipped.
2: Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, well, it was 10 weeks ago.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, when we got together. And I think at, at the time, uh, what it looked like was a combination of uh Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell were pursuing uh pursuing a tightening path. And we're accepting that a market-based tightening was going to slow the economy in order to bring inflation down. And I think since that point, they've uh they've done their own pivot. Uh, whether you think it's a good idea or not, who cares? Yes, right? Bing, 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 when bing. you're trading markets, who cares? You have to respond to the things that are in front of you. And in particular, starting with the QRA announcement on November 1st, it became very clear that Janet Yellen was going to back off the market-based tightening and the long end tightening and then that was reinforced by uh by how Jerome Powell has positioned it back in November 1st and then again uh at the meeting uh, of, uh last week and so you mm-hmm. put that together and it's like look the overall picture is one is a stance of easing now is easing when we've had an inflationary spike and unemployments at secular lows and stocks are making new highs is easing really the appropriate thing to do i I saw recently that you know we had in the last uh, eight weeks the biggest easings since either the bottom in 2009 or the bottom in 2020 but heck like you got to go with what's going on and, and they've decided to ease and and the markets are going to respond in that. You know, well, when Joel. you
1: say easing, though, you're speaking on t- you have two different types of easing. You're, there's the Fed and the fact that instead of actually selling uh, bonds, they stop selling bonds. And then there's Powell and his pivot which is now like the onomatopoeia thing. The pip, the pal pivot was powerful. And combined, it, it it basically forced equities to go up in value uh, since there was no, you know, the, the wind was at their sales, not at their heads. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah,
2: I mean, if anything, I think uh, equity investors will quickly forget or not notice the fact that long-end bonds, bonds at the same volatility of stocks, are up more since mm-hmm. November 1st than stocks are. So what that highlights, this is not a story of – it's actually not repricing stronger growth expectations in the economy, which is interesting, and I think creates actually a forward-looking opportunity. What's been priced in is a big easing that's been reflected in the yield market, and that's flowing through almost directly into equities. Now, I think that's setting us up for an interesting opportunity in particular in the first quarter because what that means is we've had a big easing stocks have actually trailed high volatility or long duration bonds. My guess is we'll see a flip of that because a big easing is the sort of thing that's good for stocks, but particularly bad for bonds. Hmm.
1: And when you say um, the easing, again, tell our audience what you're talking about at the Fed.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first the first easing uh, was by Secretary uh, Janet Yellen at the Treasury. And Basically we we all know that there's a big fiscal deficit and the question is how do you finance that fiscal deficit and for all sorts of for a number of different reasons related to the debt ceiling
1: mm-hmm. she was
2: able to finance it using selling short duration securities and then and drawing on the essentially the treasury's bank account at the Fed. Right. She refilled that bank account selling only short duration securities and in the summer indicated that she would start selling more long duration securities, but then walked that back on November 1st. And that's essentially, if you just think about whether you call it easing or not, the long-end interest rate market is just a market and it's buyers and sellers and the treasury is the big seller. And if the treasury one day everyone expects to issue a bunch more bonds, and the next day they, they say that they're not going to issue, you know, they're not going to pick up their bond issuance. That's a big change in the future expectations. And that's a big part. It's about half of what we saw in terms of that bond rally. Uh that that started this the cycle that really started on November first. Well,
1: uh, Yeah, you make a great point, but it's a point that I don't think many people have actually got their heads around. Was that the the, the minute they were supposed to announce that they were going to be selling a whole bunch of twenty-year and thirty-year bonds? All of a sudden, she got
2: "Mm, no, not going to do. No, I mean, huge shift of bills, a huge shift of bills, and this is the problem. Like, she in in an interview, you know, typically the the bond mix. This is not this is a, a matter for like. The technocratic treasury nerds, right? They're like carefully, like p- with their sharp pencils, figuring out exactly what the normal ratios are, and what Janet Yellen did was said, "Screw that, we don't, we don't care what's going on with what the technocrats say. I'm just not issuing the bonds." And what she made in that choice, she made a policy decision about something that had previously been a technocratic decision, and that's a big deal because yeah, it means. <laughs> Because she sits in a policy, because she sits in a political role, not a independent role, and she's now pursuing a set of policies that have meaningful influence on the macroeconomic dynamic. And you can imagine that she's highly incentivized to support policies that would be uh, supportive to the current administration, particularly as it's entering uh, the, this current political yeah. cycle. Yeah, we talked about this, Todd, yeah. a lot. You know,
0: that's a that's a that's a a very, um, I would say, I mean, that's that's a very opinionated statement, though. I mean, there's no factual. I know what you're saying. And it does seem that way that you're going to have somebody in Treasury that wants to make sure the current administration continues, especially going into an election year. But if that's the case, and that leads everyone to believe that the Fed is going to cut rates, not because it's good for the economy, but they're just doing it to help the current administration. What do you think? I would yeah, Bob, separate I live, the Fed and the Treasury. I have years though. in D.C., okay? <laughs> and
1: I've known, I know many people in all the various departments, et cetera, et cetera. And as I've been sharing, it's my favorite word now, Todd, sharing um, on this podcast over the year, that in an election year for a presidential election year, behavior changes. And if you don't get with the program, your ass is out. Uh, we've seen that. I you know I've seen it right. five times. Yeah, yeah. Yellen though, that it was going to be the one who capitulated first.
2: Well, I mean, I think Yellen is in the position to be most uh, politically oriented, right? Her role is a political role.
1: Yeah, like, that's,
2: that's a very important thing to remember. And to the extent that she has flexibility, right, I think there's ambiguity because if you go back, like Minuchin wasn't really playing politics in his debt in his you know debt composition um, previous i mean really it it's it been a long time since there was real politics being played in debt composition really back into the 70s since the last time you saw it so it was ambiguous uh and i think you know we we got a pretty clear picture about what the policy mix is going to be and At some level, you just got to accept it when you see that, which is the Treasury will play politics. And the thing that is important to remember is they have a lot of room to play politics. If, for instance, they issued no no coupons, no duration assets over the course of the next year, the debt profile of the U.S. would move up from something like 25 percent bills up to 30 percent bills. 30% 30% bills is on the higher side, but we had 30% bills back in the past. So she could literally pull the rug out of this whole thing and issue no duration and create a big bond bid if she so chose uh, and has the flexibility to do that. Now, I don't think she'll be that extreme because I think that will be almost too mm. obvious that it's a political yeah. set of decisions, but she can certainly nudge the economy upward from and, and bond yields down. From where she sits.
0: Bob. Last time we had you on the show, you we asked a question about a recession, and you were adamant, saying, "Oh yeah, the the U.S. economy will, will hit and will go into recession territory." You want to play year. that back Todd? I was <laughs> oh yeah, please, please play <laughs> back replay. <laughs> where 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 are your thoughts now on a recession? Well, you
2: know, any any good macro trader has very strong opinions, loosely held, and particularly loosely held <laughs> when monetary policy. And fiscal policy starts to to meaningfully shift in the opposite direction. So I disavow uh all previous claims uh <laughs> that the recession was immediate. Uh so just go ahead and you can delete that section of the previous tape. That's but the thing not about putting because...
1: a tape, trust me, man. Twenty years on Fed uh, on business television,
0: OMG. <laughs> <laughs> and that's I'm fine. Just that's glad fine. That, you know, there was no TikTok done. Well, you yeah, can, yeah. Even Bloomberg this morning they even said Mike Wilson is flipping. Everybody's oh, flipping man. to the boy side. Um, well, I think I
2: I, I think that you know I'd say there's two things. One, there's been a change in policy stance. That's all there is to it. You have to you know either accept it or get out of the way. And yeah. so you know I I have. There's no, I, I'm not. I have never been a bear or a bull, right? It's, it's, you know, it's dependent upon the circumstances and dependent upon the market pricing, and so this is a good example of that where people who got entrenched in one view or another, you know, have not. I mean, really, the realities haven't done well over the class, course of the last two years. Neither bulls nor bears have done well over the last two years. The people who have done well have been flexible and responsive to the dynamics at play. Now, the thing I would say in terms of being a bear. You can make me the biggest bear on bonds and on short rates. Now that's a different conversation, but stocks, you know, the U S economy is doing pretty well. And if anything, we just got a big easing cycle, you know, a big easing injection uh, over the course of the last couple, you know, the last two months. And uh, for all the recession doomers out there, like, a strong economy getting 100 basis points of yield easing and stocks up, you know, 10 or 15%. Like that, that's not like the fast path to recession. That's not how it works.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I, you know, I was looking back and you were also sort of adamant about that the market was pricing in 25% earnings growth in 2024 and 2025. And that was sort of your reason to be cautious, if you will. Um, But I, but monetary Trump's, EPS, is that the message?
2: That's for sure. I mean, monetary conditions, Trump, Trump EPS uh absolutely. And I think there's also, interestingly, right now, a flows dynamic, which is particularly advantageous on a forward-looking basis for stocks relative to bonds, because stocks uh have been depressed, haven't actually been as responsive to this easing as you'd normally expect. Because there's been a big rebalancing dynamic in the market, if you look back through the course of this year, obviously long-end bonds are down a lot relative to stocks. What happens if you're a big institutional investor? Do you have asset allocation targets? Is you have to sell your stocks and buy your bonds in order to bring your bond allocation up Mm -hmm. by the end of the year. That is a big negative pressure on stocks relative to bonds that it's flowing through right now. But there will be a point, looks like it might even start – Kind of this weekish, where that pressure is going to start to fade, right? Which is going to lead to more buoyancy in stocks relative to bonds.
1: Yeah, I mean you, I mean you're describing sort of the, the perfect scenario if you're long, which is a, if you look at the short positions going into let's just say four weeks ago, um, there's been a massive rip your face off uh, rally in in stocks, which then becomes a self fulfilling prophecy because of the wealth effect and that in households, 25% of the households, upper income households, own like 90% of the of the stocks. So then they're, or certainly the wealth. And, and then you have this huge amount of cash on the sideline. What do you think, I, 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 are people gonna sort of just say, you know, I, I, I 5% was great, because almost all my money management clients are, you know, we built about an 8% cash getting 5%. And all of a sudden they're saying like, Toby, we have too much cash. I said, honey, you have like three and a half percent cash. <laughs> no, no, no. We need, to run, You know, because because of the dividends we're getting. I mean, I, I love to brag about my LPG uh, tankers, but as I told Todd, I uh, in my raw, I just got like this twenty two thousand dollar dividend from an LPG tanker that I didn't even expect. I forgot I owned it. Um, and, you know, there's <laughs> there there are so many cool spots. That um, you know you can be at here if you uh, if you if you stay in the micro because you know that's why we're perfect uh, couple uh, Bob because I'm totally micro and I don't give a shit about the macro um, and, and 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 while everybody was dying you know uh, uh, with the uh, market but but there's this one other part we haven't talked about which is the magnificent seven what's your which which where do we go on that because in theory now the the, the narrative is We're going to recycle those profits and they're going to go into uh, other parts of the market. What do you say?
2: Well, I I mean, I don't have much of a particular independent view specifically on the MAG7 stocks. I mean, other than, you know, historically, when you see stocks in the PE range that many of those are priced in, it's hard to achieve uh, to accomplish those goals. Not impossible, but generally hard. I think what we're seeing right now is that um is the the breadth, and, and that's what I think that's what I think is probably the most interesting thing that's going on here yeah. is the breadth that we're seeing in the market that's moving away from the few stocks to, you know, I mean, like Russell 2K, you walk in, it's up four percent, you know, oh holy mackerel, and it's yeah. got you know, those companies, if we're actually in a late stage easing cycle, easing dynamic that's going on. You should ex- those those companies have been beaten down a ton, right? Relative to the mega caps, which were you know, way above highs already, and so we we likely should see some rotation and reflective of the reflective of the fact that those companies. And it's not just the Russell 2K; it's you know the financials and the regional banks. And there's a lot of pockets of this market that were basically priced in for very, very weak economic conditions and very, very tight monetary policy, where if that's the the reality is not that way, then um, at least in the short term should should really benefit.
1: Well, uh, the Russell 2000 is a great example. Uh, To me, it it was very bullish that we were seeing some rotation. I mean, there's really no reason why some of these Russell 2000 good companies and finances, obviously, they understood that part. But yeah, we we've, we you know we flipped, <laughs> adding some uh, calls on on the uh, Russell 2000 simply because we saw the breadth coming back. I mean, you know, when mm. when 21 stocks account for 81 and then 91 percent of the S and P 500, that's about as narrow as breadth you'll ever get. And you you know you can ride that toboggan for as long as you can. But all of a sudden, finally, there's nothing left to short on the Russell 2000 side. The interest rates were coming down. Therefore, the financials are going to do better. neighbor price priced at fifty percent of their asset value. Right. Yada yada yada. I thought it right. was very healthy to see this rotation because that meant that actually value mattered and, and 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 stock picking mattered and 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 that means that the market was just not you know AI uh, sniffing the sniffing the drugs. That to me was healthy.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean we 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 forget that like you know uh, typically. The small cap companies are the most, the highest beta companies, right? right? Like we've gotten sort of confused over the last 18 months that it's mag seven that are the highest beta companies, but that's not right. Like typically those small companies that are living on the edge and where those incremental shifts in monetary policy were detrimental, but now beneficial to them is where you see the biggest pop. And that's exactly what we've seen. And and given the valuations that are still out there, you know, some of these regional banks are still down. You know, I've only recovered like half of their post SVB uh, hits, you know, and you know, you got to roll up your sleeves and get into the nuts and bolts and we won't bore each other. But uh, with, with that, but you know, as a, as an old banks guy, I look there and I say, there's a lot of pickings. And if I can see some pickings that sit in regional banks, then I'm sure there's lots of pickings that I don't even understand, you know, across the Russell 2k and other places.
0: Right, right. Well, we're going to leave it there on that block, guys, because coming up after the break, since Bob is bullish right now, we have to ask him what he likes. Sectors, maybe some individual stocks, but we'll get into all of that right after the break. So with us today is Bob Elliott. He is the CIO of Unlimited Funds. Please stay with us. And the boy can take a pun. And the boy can take a pun.
2: odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with Wrestlow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with Wrestlow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with Wrestlow, the business of sports betting podcast a news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil but How Do You Separate Fact from Fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts, and remember, don't believe everything you read. I'm Jessica Inskip from the Market Make Her podcast and Director of Education and Product at Options Play. You're listening to Buy, Hold, Sell with
1: Tobin and Todd.
0: Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. Well, stocks are on a tear right now. Everybody's bullish, and we have the biggest fool of all with us today. We have Bob (laughs) Elliott. He is the CIO of Unlimited Funds. You can go to unlimitedfunds.com. To check out all the products that that they are offering, which is sensational. And his Bob, unlimited talk. bullishness. Yeah. There you go, unlimited bullishness. Bob, let's talk about about the the company a little bit because I'm sure we everybody knows about this five trillion dollars in money market right and money market funds right now. All this money, a lot of people are the fear of missing out. A lot of cash is flowing into the market. I I anticipate we'll see even more once rates start coming down at 24. But for your company, are you seeing a big amount of inflows? I mean, you, you tell the audience.
2: Well, a lot of what we're trying to do is create uh, a product that that replicates what hedge funds are doing in terms of their positioning uh, and their returns. And I think the thing that many investors looked at uh, over the course, particularly coming out of 2022, was they said the, the safe place to be is holding cash. But cash has not been a particularly safe place to hold over the course of the last, certainly the last, uh, you know, 15 months or so as asset prices have risen. And I think a lot of folks have been burned by that. And so we're looking for ways to get that agility because the problem is you go into cash and it's like a roach motel. It's like tough to get out of cash, right? Because cash always feels safe. Assets always feel scary. And so one of the things that we think is really interesting and compelling is instead of, using cash to be safe and trying to time the market, hire essentially the most sophisticated thinkers that are out there trying to time the market, right? With all of the work that they're doing day in and day out, let them do the market timing. And you don't have to really, you know, you don't have to think about that at that scale and that level, because as we've seen, like, look, this market timing stuff can matter on the order of weeks or months in a way that, you know, the everyday investor is—they're just, just not going to get it done. They're just not going to shift fast enough. And so I think you know these hedge fund managers are quite compelling. And and if you actually—if you you know obviously very high beta stocks have done very well over the course of the last fifteen months. But if you just go back over the course of the since the Fed started tightening, there's basically only three assets that are up meaningfully, and that's commodities, gold, and hedge fund strategies. And that's because you know hedge funds have been able to generate mid single digit and a little bit better returns over the course of the last two years, but they didn't encounter, they didn't experience the same sort of drawdown. They didn't have the 25% drawdown. I was just looking today, tech stocks and hedge funds have delivered the same return over the last two years, but one went down almost 40% and one didn't. Right. And so that's kind of the idea of, uh, of letting these managers uh, sort of direct how, the capital is is uh, is managed on a day to day basis, and so right, you right.
1: actually have hedge fund managers who are the asset allocators.
2: No, no, we we infer what uh, the manager's positioning is by looking at their returns, which we can see oh. in close to real time uh, and uh, pretty granular in a pretty granular timely way. And so, um, what we do is we use machine learning, look at their return pattern, and back into how they're positioned. And part of the reason we can do that is because. My co-founder, Bruce, and I have been in the hedge fund business for many decades, so we have a pretty good sense as to what they're doing. And so as we observe how they're, uh, how they're returning, what their returns are in close to real time, we have a pretty good sense as to how they're navigating through these environments.
0: So, so Bob, with that, when you look at those hedge fund returns, I, I mean, you guys are, you and Bruce, very smart guys. I'm sure you're looking at the Sharpe ratio. You're looking at how much risk these managers are taking. Do you see these managers adding risk, even though the returns are up double digits? Yeah. So, hedge fund managers
2: have been a bit more conservative than certainly index investing. Uh, Over the course of the last couple of years, um, which has actually paid off very well over those years in terms of generating a pretty good return without the meaningful drawdown that a lot of folks experienced that forced them to shift to cash, right? A lot of people shifted into cash right at the bottom. And that was the worst thing that they could have done. And so these managers, this is what hedge fund managers do when times are volatile and uncertain, they're conservatively positioned, trying to generate a modest return until you get to that point where the cycle breaks and it's clearer, it's more going in one direction or the other, and where they can lever on more bets. And what we have seen over the course of the last, I mean eight or eight or ten weeks is that these managers are picking up. Uh, the amount of risk that they're taking really directionally moving it in the form of long uh, equity, equity positions in a bunch of different ways. And that's pretty interesting uh, because they've been the real laggards in terms of equity bullishness over the course of the last uh, 15 months. I,
1: Bob, I, the one number that I always get every year is – The average hedge fund return and the average hedge fund return one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years has seriously lagged the overall market. Now, what they did great in was that that they were much lower volatility. I I get that. But in essence, you guys have created a system to sort of cherry pick the hedge funds and then from the hedge funds you cherry pick you're able to infer what their positioning is because of their relative. But how do you get the relative performance? Is that a database you tap into or do you guys just steal it? I I didn't
2: mean that. (laughs) Uh, We do not steal it. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, there's actually there's a bunch of performance aggregators that give you yeah. a pretty good sense as to what uh, there's sort of six or eight of those that are out there. And and the reason why that is, is hedge funds are always trying to benchmark how they're doing relative to other funds in their category or the overall industry. And so we're just leveraging all of that reporting that they're doing to all these different performance aggregators, uh, and using it in a novel way that's, you know, not what people typically use it for. So we actually have very good, very timely understanding. I think going back to your first point about how hedge funds seem to have always underperformed the market. Totally right. If you look at the index performance information, you'd say, eh, like not that great a return, all things considered. But the reason why that is is not because these hedge fund managers have a strategy problem. Their strategies are great. They have a fee problem. And so if you charge two and 20 fees, of course it doesn't look good. But what we're doing is because we're using technology to infer what they're doing. You know, There's no star PMs Uh. to pay. Right. So we can offer it at a much lower fee structure than what those two and 20 managers are doing, and in a much more tax efficient structure, yeah. like an ETF, that makes the post tax, post fee return much more compelling for the everyday investor.
1: Yeah. There, there's no question that what, what I loved about reading about your strategy was just that you're not starting, if I'm giving you my money. I'm not down twenty percent starting on January second because that's right. <laughs> because every profit dollar you make from it, you're taking twenty percent. You son of a bitches! I, I, even <laughs> you know, when I had a hedge fund, I couldn't look somebody in the eye and take twenty percent. You know, I, I could, I could do ten percent of the ups, but of course, I didn't. I'm not like the typical hedge fund manager who has two divorces, two houses in the Hamptons, five kids for three different women <laughs> that hey, they're paying. Private,
0: when, steve, you know, when, when steve cohen was managing money he did a three and 30 deal yeah he was taking 30 yeah. percent of the profit so yeah i
2: mean and and millennium you know millennium, with yeah. all of this fee charging to the yeah. you know path fee pastor stuff you know some of the clients you talk to them and they're like i think it's seven i think it's eight and 30 and a five-year lockup and you're like holy crap how are yeah. you ever gonna how you know you know, seven or eight and 30 and five-year lockups is like pretty tough. That's a pretty tough hurdle because there's, you know, alpha is uncertain. Fees are pretty certain, right? You know, you pay <laughs> 700 basis points in fees. It's pretty obvious what's going on. Alpha hey. is a lot harder. Uh hey, Bob, as, would as you as for the seen.
1: audience think just define what alpha is and what oh, alpha is?
2: Alpha just means you're talking
1: uh, like Spock to some people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All all alpha means you you can make money in two ways. You could buy assets uh, and just hold on to them and do index investing. And you expect that to have a positive return over time because, why, you know, if you if if it didn't you shouldn't give your money to people who are who are using it through you know borrowing or issuing equity so that's what we call beta alpha is outperforming relative to that index investing and so that's really what hedge funds are focused on it's not they're not focused on generating index like returns what they're trying to do is generate returns that are uh are are in excess of what those indexes are doing all now with there's less a bunch of different – with but, less volatility. That's exactly right. So that might be the same return. Like if you look at the hedge fund managers in general, they actually target a return that is a return level that is about on par with stocks, but they try to do it about half or less of the monthly volatility and about yeah. a third of the drawdowns. So you just have a more consistent return. It's also not 100% correlated to stocks. So it's diversifying in a portfolio. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I, I understand that the pension level makes a lot of sense. I I, I still the, the the three and 20. I mean, look at Ken uh, Griffin or whatever. Oh yeah. Set it out. 55% a year. I mean, that, but, but he's making it as a market maker. He's not even buying. Yeah. Not, that's
2: not, that's not hedge fund money. That is, yeah. that is market making. Same is true with, for Renaissance, anything that's that consistent. Those are market making. So yeah, I mean, it's like a tale as old as time. You know, who, what's the best position to be in is to be on both sides of the trade and be the market maker. So if you can do it. You know, good for them for being the market maker, but if you're betting long and short markets, you know most of the return is pretty. You know, it's 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 uh it's in many ways kind of boring relative to you know that. But that's right. the idea: stock like returns with a boring path, which is you know pretty compelling for a lot of investors. What yeah, do you no guys, about
1: what, that. Excuse me. What do you guys do, or do you have any interest in dividend ETFs or dividend? You know, where where the return is much more dividend. Based than it is um, equity-based?
2: Yeah, not, I mean, not so much because most of these uh, managers are thinking about exposures, not really around a dividend cut, but they're thinking about attributes of the companies because they're kind of agnostic to the source of return, whether it's dividends Mm -hmm. or whether it's uh, capital appreciation. And so they're not really, that's not, that's not like a big uh, focus the way, you know, I think for a lot of, of uh, advisors, you know, income matters for their clients and, and when they're thinking about it. And, and, and so it's sort of more appropriate for them, I think, than, than what the hedge fund managers are thinking.
1: Todd, Todd that's why I'm never going to be a hedge fund manager again, because like 40% of my returns every year are actual freaking cash money dividends, <laughs> you know, things you can spend, things you can pay alimony checks with. Yes, um, And, and I, I, you know, just to be only long, you know, stocks are only start, when you can get now these crazy dividends. Mm -hmm. Um, In the old days, you couldn't get dividends like you can today. Uh, You know, people thought that they were, the the managers thought they were smarter than the the dividends, so they just kept reinvesting. And finally, some, some of the companies finally said, you know, how about we just buy back stock and pay dividends? And- uh, you know that, that we're gonna the stock's gonna go up more, and our people are happier. But that's a subject for another day.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I thought you wanted to be a manager so you could buy the Mets one day. But um, but we'll, we'll worry about that.
1: <laughs> <another> <laughs> but Stephen Cohen, trust me when I tell you this: he's not a div. He doesn't go for the dividends. <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: and who is. would want to buy the Mets? That's the real question. That's, that's right, right. Let's exactly. move
1: on. <laughs> Just um, because you <laughs> grew up on, in Queens does, yes. does not mean that you want to own the Mets. <laughs> and, then, and then put $120 million out for pit players who underperform. I'm an old Dodger fan, okay? So when we got Otani, I'm like, awesome. When I found out that he's only taking $2 million a year, Yeah, and they're deferring seventy million a year. Holy macro! Now that those Dodgers are. But remember, what's interesting?
0: He he grew up in an area of the world where they have negative interest rates, so he has zero appreciation of the time value of money, that (laughs) compounding. So, so for him, you know, he's getting fifty million in endorsements anyway. So he's deferring, but think about what he's uh, losing—just an interest alone. But Bob, before we close out the show, I have to ask you. Favorite sectors, what do you think? You mentioned commodities, gold earlier with the hedge fund managers. What do you think uh, going into 2024?
2: Well, I think the biggest mispricing in the market has got to be in the short rate market. Take a look at what's going on in the short rate market right now. We see 150, 160 basis points of cuts priced into 2024. And I look around and I say, for what reason? Like where, where, why are we cutting? Why, why is there such a substantial... Uh, expectation of cuts. Now, look, the Fed has said maybe they'll cut three times on the dots, but that's only three times. That's not six. That's three. That's not six or seven. That's three. And they're probably one of the more dovish players in the market right now. And so the real question is, you know, where are those cuts going to come from? When I think about what's going on, the economy is growing above potential. We just had a big, a massive easing uh circle you know massive yeah. easing injection that's come in and uh and unemployment's at secular lows and you know inflation is moving down but it's not you know the fed hasn't met its mandate yet certainly not the sort of time to be swiftly easing monetary policies so economic conditions look okay uh inflation is still a concern where where are all these cuts going to come from and i think the the market's a bit over its skis on this yeah bob this I, one. I
1: was going to ask you as a final question but Sort of that same deal. In your previous life, you know, forty days ago, uh, when you were bearish, you could have made the case that, well, because we're going to have a recession, that the Fed would cut rates. That's their only, you know, blunt instrument that they have. That was before Ms. Yellen uh, decided to flip the entire script. But I, I don't, I don't understand that we're going to get. I mean, seven. I don't know what they're smoking over there seven cuts. I, I could make the case that that at the margin, incrementally cutting 75 basis points, three quarters of a 1% at the Fed funds rate makes sense. But next time we have you on, I'd love to have a discussion about why the Fed funds rate doesn't mean squat anymore. I mean, it, it, it used to be the end all be all. And yet it, it doesn't move the needle really much at all because there's so much private equity, there's so many other lenders out there that are not based pricing off of of them. That's uh, that's for the next question. If we haven't put everybody to sleep so far on alpha and beta. <laughs> oh,
2: well, I think I think that that's that's the big question is where you know if you look at that pricing too, a big chunk of why there's so many cuts expected is because the, uh, there's a 35 percent probability priced in that short rates will be below 3% by the end of 2024. I mean, below 3% from the current 550 right yeah. now would imply a a collapse, an economic, right. uh, a significant economic deterioration and the Fed being highly responsive to that significant economic deterioration, you know, do I think that that's possible? Of course, anything's possible. We could have a shock. Anything's possible. But the idea that there's a one-third chance that the Fed funds rate gets cut by two hundred and fifty or three hundred basis points or more over the course of the next year—that seems very elevated when you look at the basic facts, which is the economy's doing okay, and we just ease like all get out over the course of the last, you know, eight weeks.
1: Yeah, I can't I can't make the, the numbers add up. I mean, there is interesting that in the core CPE, the core uh, inflation rate, that DC. shelter cost is, you know, 42 percent ish of, of what that inflation is measured at. And I could see staying higher for longer, which would keep, uh, you know, which which. Uh, well, let me tell you, this again. I could see cutting rates to get mortgage rates down a little bit so people would start to sell their homes so that we could actually get some turnover in residential, I could see that. But for pricing in that, many, you know, three quarters of 1% cut means that you're 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 100% sure there's a recession. You're 100% sure the Fed's going to, you know, take extreme measures. Uh, They're going to reverse all their QE or QT, I should say. And, and that would only mean that you would have to have a real recession and if the market is looking six to nine months ahead, which is another canard I love, then then somebody is really, really wrong
2: here. Right. I right. know I know from given that we were together ten weeks ago, yeah. I said recession was on the horizon. Now I simply ask, where's my recession? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, Good we
1: have a recession I love that. light. We have recession that, light. There um, you go. Recession yeah, light. It, it, Yeah, I would, you know, we'll end it with that, but I I would say the other key issue that I've harped on for the last 18 months is the U.S. economy today in 2024 is so significantly different than the economy that I started at Wall Street in 82 that you wouldn't recognize it. and I, I mean, I think we already had this pre-recession. I think the market priced in the recession before we had a recession because it just made so much sense to everybody because because nobody knew. It was like flying an air, airplane with no compass and having the thing spin around. All these new inputs, all these new economic facts are all new. They've never been arrayed the same way that they're arrayed. And therefore, people were just, you know, doing scientific wild ass guessing based on historical precedent that in my book does not apply to the uh, economy in 2024 human behavior never changes i get that but so much of the economy has changed in the nature of the you know economy yeah. You know, the 40% of people who own their homes outright. Right. Yeah. In 1982, that was 24%. You know how I know that? Because I have bart.google.com and it answers every question I have. <laughs> yes, you do.
0: <laughs> well, we'll we'll definitely table that one because the next time we have Bob on, and hopefully it's not uh we don't have to wait 10 weeks to have you back <laughs> on, Bob. But we definitely want to talk about AI and and all of that fun stuff as well. So so Bob Elliott, he is the CIO of Unlimited Funds. Bob, thank you once again for joining us on Buy, Hold, Sell. We can't wait to have you back on and continue the discussion. Oh, you're
1: such a bootlicker,
0: Todd. Jeez, I mean, come on, just take it down a notch.
2: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Todd. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, and also, for the audience, go to unlimitedfunds.com to learn more about all the products that they have over there. And, um, and I think you'll definitely be um, pleasantly surprised, that's for sure. So uh, I know we are as well. So, all right. So, Bob, if I will reconnect with you over the next couple of weeks, happy holidays to you and yours and also to the audience as well. And on behalf of Bob Elliott and Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you again for joining us on Buy, Hope, Self. We'll catch you next time. Take
1: care. Buy, hold, sell brought to you by CrossCheck Management.
2: How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts